neuf à la banque. I need another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. That's Sean Connery as James Bond, making his introduction in Dr. No, the very first 007 movie. More than 60 years later, a novel titled Double or Nothing introduces us to a new crop of secret agents while leaving out James Bond entirely. The author of the book, British novelist Kim Sherwood, brings the 007 saga up to date with quantum computers, brain-computer interfaces, an eccentric billionaire who builds spaceships, and a plot that's all about the climate crisis. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me as I chat with Kim Sherwood about the real-world technologies that inspired her spy story, and what it's like for a woman author to dive into what some might consider a quintessentially macho fiction franchise. Double or Nothing is the first of what's expected to be a trilogy of spy novels authorized by the estate of Ian Fleming, the creator of the 007 saga. Kim Sherwood, who's also written two well-received novels that are definitely not about spies, was chosen to bring the classic spy franchise up to date. Her first book of the trilogy definitely does that. Q, the quartermaster at MI6 who came up with James Bond's exploding pen and other garish gadgets in earlier novels, has been replaced by a quantum computer. And the novel's billionaire bad guy happens to own a satellite network as well as a space launch system, which makes me wonder whether Double or Nothing will end up on Elon Musk's or Jeff Bezos's reading list. During our Zoom chat, Kim Sherwood and I geeked out over the technological twists that she put into the plot. She also shared some deep insights into the enduring appeal of the 007 saga and why it's so important for James Bond to keep up with our changing times. I started out by asking Kim to give her elevator pitch for the book. Double or Nothing is the first in a new James Bond series, expanding the world of 007 to introduce a new ensemble cast of double O agents. So at the start of double or nothing, James Bond is missing, possibly captured, possibly even killed. MI6 don't know. And there's a new roster of double O heroes who are trying to find him while also attempting to avert a climate catastrophe. And we'll get into that climate catastrophe in just a little bit. But first, I'd love to hear how one gets to follow in Ian Fleming's footsteps. (laughs) Well, I've been a James Bond fan all of my life and literally all of my life I've said to anybody who would listen one day I want to write James Bond and I feel incredibly lucky that it's come true. The Fleming estate were looking for a new writer because Anthony Horowitz's run had come to an end and my agent heard this and she knew that this was my, you know, dream of dreams and luckily the Flemings had enjoyed my first novel. My agent pitched me and they invited me to send some ideas so I wrote them a letter. I wanted to find some way to kind of prove what a fan I am. So I included a bit of homework that my mum luckily had kept from when I was at school. Uh, When I was about 14, our English teacher asked us to write about an author we admire. And I'd made this booklet about Ian Fleming with little pull-out flaps and illustrations and all of these things. So I sent that to the Flemings and I just said, you know, 
this would be a lifelong dream come true. It would be such an honor to get to follow in Fleming's footsteps, as you said. And they liked my ideas and it all took off from there. Did you start with a completely blank slate or were there ground rules you had to follow? For example, did they say that you had to incorporate the idea that James Bond is missing? No. So there were only two criteria. One was to bring it into the present day, so write it in the 21st century. And the other was to introduce these new double O characters. But I could do that however I wanted. So it was really exciting, this idea of developing new heroes, but also a challenge, of course, because... If you're writing a James Bond novel and you're asking readers to care about other characters, it's a, it's a stretch because it's James Bond. You know, he's an icon. He dominates the spotlight. If he's there, he's who you pay attention to. So I thought I would work that challenge into the story itself and have him missing from the beginning and introduce these characters who care about him and are trying to find him. So he's both absent and present. He's missing, but he's there in flashbacks. He's there in memories. He's there in the characters' minds. There's such a huge canon of uh, 007 novels. Could you deviate from that canon? And uh, for example, I think that there's a character who dies in No Time to Die, but uh, appears <laughs> in, in this novel. Uh, are there different universes for different 007 stories? There are different universes. The, the canon is so complex. It's uh, very much a multiverse of madness. Um, so to kind of sort it out in my mind, I said I'm I'm writing in response to Fleming. So I have my own headcanon of Fleming's novels as if they were set in the 80s, 90s and 2000s and therefore immediately proceed double or nothing because I wanted double or nothing to be set in the present day, but I wanted it to almost echo Fleming's universe. So I kind of have my own like modern version of his novels, so a sort of modern version of Moonraker, where instead of battling a Nazi, he's battling a neo-Nazi, you know, just moving, moving what he was exploring up a little bit. The films, of course, the films themselves represent a, a kind of tangled mess of canon because we have Bond constantly reinvented. So I had to set the films aside for the purposes of the plot. But of course, you can't set the films aside for the purposes of your imagination because the films are just so rich in image. You know, you think Bond, you think Connery. It's just, it's there immediately. So I, I tried to harness that. I thought if the reader has this kind of power of association, I'll try and bring that into the story and use that kind of weight and gravity to underpin new characters and old characters, some fan favorites who appear in the book. Society has changed so much since the first James Bond novels came out, and I think you've tried to reflect those changes in society, not only in terms of the technology, but also in the diversity of the, of the characters. Uh, how much did it take, effort-wise and imagination-wise, to stretch the technology and stretch the diversity? Absolutely. Well, you know, Ian Fleming, of course, was a product of his time, and I'm a product of mine. So in a way, I think it would have been a bigger stretch to try and write as if I was a writer in the 1950s or 60s, because I'm writing the world that I've grown up in and the world that is all around me. My first step in developing these new characters was actually to take a look at MI6's website and take a look at their, their job adverts, basically. And they made for really interesting reading because it's immediately obvious that they're seeking diverse agents. They're seeking people from all different backgrounds, all different perspectives. 
And on a basic level, you know, if all of your spies look like James Bond, there's going to be a real limit to the kinds of undercover missions you can take on. Um, But there's also this idea in intelligence agencies um, called perspective blindness, where if everybody in your group comes from the same perspective, they'll all miss the same clues and they won't challenge each other. They'll just reinforce that ignorance. There's nobody to say, oh, but hang on, I see the world in a different way and I interpret that data differently. So intelligence agencies in the last few decades have really sought to diversify their agents as a strategic asset. So I took that as my kind of inspiration, really, to develop this diverse ensemble cast and also to try and make my world as inclusive as possible and to invite as many readers as possible to see themselves as the hero. So for me, that felt like a very natural, creative decision. Gadgetry plays a big part in the world of 007, and Double or Nothing definitely raises the stakes, so to speak, in the gadget game. One of the traditional 007 characters, Q, is actually a quantum computer. And then you also throw in a space-savvy billionaire who air-launches satellites for a global constellation. I'm not sure whether Richard Branson or... Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos should sue for trademark infringement over that one. How did you come up with the novel's tech twists and the tech-centric characters in in the book? Well, coming up with a villain for James Bond is one of the most fun aspects, but also one of the most challenging because the Bond villains are so iconic. So, you know, you're in the shadow of Goldfinger and all of these other amazing characters. But I looked at what Fleming had done. He wrote about the major concerns of his day, whether it was fear of communism or fear of the bomb, whether it was civil rights issues or changing gender politics. He's working out all of those issues through his stories. So I looked around and thought, what's our biggest concern? And it felt to me like our biggest global concern, both existentially and practically, is the climate crisis. And I was intrigued how we're using technology to meet that crisis. So uh, there's a report that came out, I think, in 2017, um, that was put together by joint US intelligence agencies, kind of looking at the future and at future threats. And there's a whole section on the climate crisis um, and, and all the different ways it will change geopolitics from displacement of people to geoengineering. And one of the things I found really intriguing in that report was this idea that Rogue actors or states could use geoengineering to try and avert the climate crisis, but without global consensus and without really knowing how it would work out, because these things have been tested on simulators, but not in real life. So if somebody used the technology of geoengineering um, to try and kind of meet the climate crisis and there was fallout, there would also be major blowback from whichever countries or communities were impacted by it. So I was really curious about that. And then I was really curious about these different technologies that intelligence agencies themselves are using to try and meet these new threats. And quantum computing is one of them. So a lot of intelligence agencies are using quantum computing and artificial intelligence to crunch these massive data sets, you know, things that would usually take hundreds of years for a human mind to work out. But they're using them for things like trawling through the financial transactions of terrorists. And there's a kind of interesting tie between the two, because one paper I read on quantum computing said this technology could be used to solve time travel. It could be used to solve the climate crisis. And currently we're using it to fight terrorism. And there's something kind of so human about that, the the sort of incredibly lofty aims and the kind of down in the dirt practicality. Um, So I was really intrigued by the meeting of those two things. 
How did you do your research into climate change, uh, quantum computing, and the other subjects that you had to write about? So I read a lot of very dense academic papers, and I should say that I'm not at all from a scientific background. So I was looking up every third word in the dictionary to try and follow along what I was reading. Um, I'm lucky that I'm, I'm a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, where there's an amazing science team and medical team. And I was able to chat with a few people and say to them, can you translate this for me, <laughs> in essence? Um and I wanted to kind of look at the cutting edge of technology and how things are changing. James Bond has always been really interested in, I think, the vanguard of change and what's coming next. And I applied that in a few different ways through the book. And I was really grateful for experts who who would talk to me. So one of the characters, Joseph Dryden, 004, he, um, he, he's in special forces originally, and then he suffers what was the kind of signature injury of Western troops, um, traumatic brain injury that leaves him with auditory processing disorder. And I spoke to some military medical doctors about the uh, kind of advancements that are being made in medical aids and hearing aids, because I'd, I'd read about, you know, a few different versions. I'd read about a hearing aid that can essentially read your brain patterns and pick up who you want to focus on in a room and raise the level of that voice, which obviously would be incredibly handy for a spy. Um, and I'd also read about this idea of a brain computer interface to help with hearing. So I just talked to them about that. And I said, this is what I've learned. Can I, can I put these together for a character, these technologies? And they said, well, yes, that, that's basically what's going to happen next. And talked to me through how um, a kind of neural link might be made between the human mind and, and a quantum computer which I ended up using in the book. And that conversation was was so inspiring. I was so grateful to them for talking me through it. In the 2006 movie Casino Royale, uh, James Bond had a microchip implant that guided him I, through some stuff. So it's almost as if uh, what's old is new again, a little bit in a new context. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting in Casino Royale, he he rejects it, doesn't he? Um he kind of digs it out of himself and <laughs> he even greets the whole idea with suspicion. And I think we do have perhaps an innate human suspicion around our bodies being augmented by technology or bonded to technology. But I, I wanted to kind of explore through Dryden's character how someone's relationship with their own body might change after an injury. Um, so he's a he's a soldier, he's highly experienced, he's always been able to rely on his body. And now through this injury, his body has changed dramatically. And he's kind of been brought to the attention of Q Branch and the double O section. And Q Branch have offered him this technology as a way for him to keep serving. And he he embraces that opportunity, but it does change his sense of self. And that was a really rich theme to explore in the book. Did it take some convincing to tell your editors that you were going to turn Q into a computer? <laughs> Actually, the Flemings were really delighted. Um, I think partly because, you know, and anyone related to Bond and Ian Fleming uh, loves a pun. So, and that was also partly why I couldn't resist the idea. When I found out that intelligence agencies were using quantum computing, I just thought, oh, Q, quantum, quantum of solace. I can't resist this. It has to go in the book. And the Flemings were really happy with it because they felt like, this is the way that spy agencies are going. So it's a way to kind of embrace the new and the contemporary and just do something a little bit different as well, because Q is such an iconic character, especially on screen. And so it's hard to it's hard to refresh that in a way because people have their expectations. 
So one way to deal with that is just to go in a very different direction and, and try and bring something new to the story. And then on the geoengineering part of the plot, uh, in in the book, I, I hope I don't spoil things for people, but it can be used for good or for ill. Is the mechanism for that something you had to run by people who are experts in climate science? Or did you just kind of go ahead and say, well, this is what I need to do, so I'm going to do it? So I took it from a few different research papers, a few different kind of proposals um, by geoengineering scientists and kind of mapped them together in the story. But I did show it to a, a friend who's in science and just say to them, you know, this is what I want to happen for the story mechanics, but I don't want it to be totally unbelievable. <laughs> so so can this occur? Um, and it was kind of worrying in a way because they got back to me and said, yes, it can occur. And actually it could be much worse than you think. <laughs> so <laughs> what I had done was a sort of watered down version. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, going in that direction, I wanted to take on... There's a few different ways to go around a Bond villain. And, and, you know, one archetypal Bond villain is the one who wants to destroy the world for whatever reason or change the world. Um, and sometimes it's simply because they're a megalomaniac, but oftentimes it's because of greed. And, and I was really intrigued by the idea of greed, technology and the climate crisis and the relationship between the three, because the the sort of mass industrialization and drivers behind technology is one of the factors that's driven the climate crisis. And technology is now being proposed as a solution to that. But we actually have far more nature-based solutions that we could invest in, but they don't make anybody any money. So the profit question comes in. And that idea of somebody who's prepared to profit off the back of the suffering of others, and even to the point where they're driving collapse, climate collapse, I'm really intrigued by that. Do they not see themselves as part of humanity? Do they do they imagine that on their private island or on their spaceship they'll somehow be safe? I'm, I'm just I'm so intrigued by this. I wish I could ask ask someone in this position how they <laughs> how they rationalize it to themselves. Well, speaking of private islands and spaceships, uh, I, I want to get back to that space billionaire. How, how did you craft that character? Because there is definitely a lot of Richard Branson in, in there. <laughs> I, I wonder if you've heard back from anybody from uh, Richard's group uh, about this book and, and the parallels. No, I haven't. Um, it is funny how, just how many billionaires out there do seem to um, I think they're probably Bond fans, but they they seem to kind of enjoy the archetype of the Bond villain. But I was looking at these kinds of figures, no one in particular, but just these kinds of figures who, as I said, who are kind of, we've got this massive um, inequality gap now that's just getting bigger and bigger on an unimaginable scale. And I was writing this through the pandemic as well, when, you know, the wealthy were off on their private yachts and their private islands while the rest of us were stuck in our houses if we were lucky enough to have a home um, and where the wealth gap was growing bigger and bigger and these billionaires were profiting from the crisis in, in direct ways. So that was very much on my mind while I was writing the book. And it's also a way to give a human face to the climate crisis, which in some ways we might think about quite abstractly, but I wanted to give it human dimensions because we're experiencing it, you know, as, as humans within, within our communities and that's kind of a challenge because how do you make greed interesting? Greed is quite a flat motivation when you think about it, but it is the motivation of so many of our villains today, you know, our villains in the world. Greed seems to drive them. 
So getting into why would somebody see themselves as apart from humanity? Why would somebody see people as things, as commodities? What would have had to happen in their life for them to feel that way? That was really intriguing for me in the writing process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it wouldn't be a double O novel without exotic locales, and there are quite a lot of them in Double or Nothing, uh, ranging from the classic underground lair in Syria <laughs> to the yep. cruise in the Sea of Okhotsk and uh, stopovers in Berlin, Slovenia, Macau, Hong Kong. But I was particularly interested in the scenes that took place at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, including a shootout in a mothballed Soviet space shuttle. Tell me what went into bringing that particular locale to life. So I came across this article by a photojournalist who had, I think, just broken into one of these facilities where these uh, USSR-era space shuttles are rusting in the Kazakh steppes. Um, And I just found these images so striking and ghostly and spectral and, and really kind of potent symbols of the, the the dreams of the space age and the kind of optimism of that time now just rusting out in the desert. So that was the first image I saw and it just really grabbed my imagination. And I then began to research into this kind of changing landscape of space tourism and and space travel and the you know, we've got private companies like SpaceX, and then you've got America and you've got Russia um, until recently kind of sharing bases, like leasing the same base, but now all going their separate ways for, for obvious reasons. So a lot of communities that have relied on those big kind of state actors coming into town are now left high and dry. And I was really curious about that idea as well, like a ghost space town, you know, a town that was built on on the sort of optimism of the of the space race and, and the, you know, the drive for power of the space race built for that and now kind of left to rust, just like the space shuttles in, in the desert. So that's one of the settings for the book, Star City um, and this local space uh, kind of station in a way that Dryden 004 visits with Bertrand Paradise, who's this tech billionaire who says he's going to revive the spaceport and bring you know life back to the area. But obviously, uh, there's questions as to how saintly his motivations <laughs> are for that. <laughs> Have you gotten any feedback from folks who are familiar with modern spycraft? I know this book has been out for a few months in the UK, so I'm curious whether anyone from MI6 has have gotten back to you <laughs> and tried to tell you, you can't write that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think they do that. Um, or at least I, you know, I've been told by other writers that they keep fairly stum. Um, but I think also with with the world of James Bond, one of the things I've noticed is it does open a lot of doors. And you know, whether you're kind of being flattering or not, people still seem to want to talk to you about it. So that's been very helpful for research. I found if you put writing a James Bond novel in the subject line of an email, um, someone will get back to you from pretty much any organization, which has been helpful. (laughs) Some folks have made a big to-do over the fact that a woman is writing about the James Bond universe. I I realized that there was an earlier set of stories known as the Moneypenny Diaries that uh, they were written by a woman, but was it a big deal for you to dive into what's typically a macho literary genre? Well, I mean, for me, because I've been a Bond fan all of my life, I didn't really feel a disconnect to it at all. I I just felt such joy to to get to live out this dream, as I said. 
And I've also always been really interested in the the side of Bond that is about the female characters and the kind of history of women in Bond. And you're absolutely right. There's a kind of image of Bond as a very sort of macho story or something that's maybe aimed at men. But if you think about it, for something to be this globally popular for so many decades, it has to appeal to many people. It has to work on many levels. And I really think that James Bond does and always has. You know, I think I think it's baked into the very beginning because Ian Fleming wrote rounded, complex female characters with detailed backgrounds, with their own agendas, their own motivations. And, you know, anytime we meet a female character in the Bond novels, she's usually on her own mission and she's pretty annoyed that Bond is getting involved. You know, we, we have these characters who are fantastic, like Gala Brown, who's an undercover special branch agent, or Tiffany Case, who's a diamond smuggler, you know, these really cool characters. And then, of course, in the films, we've had some amazing actresses play these roles. So, and that's just, you know, in front of the camera. Behind the camera, there's there's Barbara Broccoli, of course, who's helmed the films for so many years. And there's all the other women who've contributed, you know, from costume designers to writers. So for me, I'm I'm excited to kind of join that line and and hopefully to kind of illuminate the role of women in Bond and to say this isn't just a story for boys. This is a story for everybody. But it's also a chance, you know, when I was a when I was a kid and I was a fan of Bond growing up, I would play James Bond games, you know, imaginary James Bond games where I was Bond, of course. You know, I wanted to be the hero. Um and I never played as a Bond girl, and that's that's no insult to Bond girls. Some of those characters are fantastic, like I said, but I didn't want to, you know, be rescued. I wanted to do the rescuing. I wanted to be the hero. So it's been fun to have the opportunity to write a female 00, 003, Johanna Harwood, who's named after the real life Johanna Harwood, who co-wrote the film adaptations of Dr. No and From Russia With Love. And it's been nice to get to create that female hero and to kind of pay homage to the first woman to write Bond. Looking ahead, I'm really curious about two things. One is uh, you're committed to writing the trilogy, but uh, do you have any sense of how long this ride is going to last? And then the other thing would be, it's such a cinematic saga. People know the movies and and uh, I'm sure that the estate and the people who make 007 movies are looking for more properties, more ways to expand the franchise. Uh, do you get any sense that Double or Nothing may show up on the big screen one of these days? Well, the films and the books, you know, so far have been quite separate since Fleming's days. It's the Fleming family that still takes care of the books and the Broccoli family who still takes care of the films. And they have a great working relationship, of course, but they also give each other creative space. But in terms of how long kind of my ride in this will last, at the moment it feels incredibly fast. So I'm I'm writing a book a year and it's a really frenetic pace. And I feel like when it's over, I'll blink and think, "Wow, did that just happen?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, after the, after three books, we'll see. Who, who knows what happens then? But it's been really lovely for me to be able to think in terms of a trilogy and think in terms of long character arcs because you can just do things with that that you can't do with only one novel. You know, you can set these very long stories running, and that's something that I've always been really interested in in kind of ensemble storytelling. I love a lot of ensemble TV shows. I'm a big Star Trek fan. I love those TV shows where you can have multiple threads, multiple characters, any one of whom could be the protagonist, any one of whom can carry the story. And so to have the chance to write a trilogy and map out these kind of multiple character arcs, that's been really exciting. Is there any book from Ian Fleming's 
bibliography or other works that you would recommend if someone were going to say, well, I want to read Double or Nothing, but I don't know that much about James Bond other than what I, what I hear. Is there one novel that you could recommend as preparatory work for Double or Nothing? Mm, that's a really interesting question. Um, which one would I... We could go. You could go one of two ways. Um, either I would say, begin at the beginning, read Casino Royale. It's where we see Bond not become a, a double O. He's already a double O, but it's where we see Bond become the man that we know him to be because he goes through a crisis in the novel, which produces this character who um, is almost well, it, well. At the end, after he's been through this crisis, Mathis says to him, "Hold close the people that you love, but don't stop being a machine." So we have this character who has this duality. He's both incredibly passionate and caring and loyal and cold and brutal and cruel. And that kind of light and darkness of Bond that carries through the novels and that we see in different ways through the films really begins there. And the reason that I would say to to read that before Double or Nothing is because, you know, Fleming in that novel has the task of introducing introducing his hero and putting him through this first crucial test and, and the beginning his arc and that's what I'm doing in Double or Nothing with the three main characters, Joseph Dryden, Johanna Harwood, and Sid Bashir at 009. And I looked a lot at how Fleming, how Fleming did that, just almost kind of technically, how did he bring those characters in? So uh, I would I'd really recommend, yeah, begin at the beginning. But then another approach would be to read From Russia with Love, where we see Bond from the perspective of Smirsh uh, as they kind of plot his downfall. I looked a lot at any any moment where Fleming looked at Bond from the perspective of other people. So we have that in From Russia with Love, structurally. We also have it in The Spy Who Loved Me, which is a really different Bond novel. It's the only novel to be narrated in first person by the main female character. And we see Bond through her eyes. And the reason I was really paying attention to those moments where we see Bond from the outside is because in Double or Nothing, I have these characters who are very close to him and who are, you know, searching for him and thinking of him. So we see Bond from all these different perspectives in, in Double or Nothing. We see him from Moneypenny's perspective, who's now uh, chief of the Double O section in the world's most overdue promotion, I felt. Um, and we see him from the perspectives of the other Double O's who have worked with him and have loved him. And I was really looking to Fleming for um, the kind of clues on how to go about that. We've talked about how the Double O saga has evolved to meet the changing times. And so I'm curious about James Bond. If he does make a reappearance, will he evolve into a completely different type of character? Or will he always be the martini drinking spy with an eye for beautiful women? <laughs> I mean, if there's no martini, there's no James Bond. I mean, for me, the, the really fun challenge of making this set in the present day was to take the essence of the character that we love and to work out how how do you make this person psychologically viable today? So he's he's eminently viable in the 1950s. He's a product of the 1950s. What the films have done, and they've done it brilliantly, is to keep Bond evolving. He's an evergreen character. He changes with his times. So Connery's Bond and, and Moore's Bonds, both very different tones because they're in very different eras. Um, and, and and all the way through. So when you look at Dalton's Bond, there's far less sex, there's far less flirtation because it's the height of the AIDS crisis. So there's a very different relationship to those ideas. And on and on, you know, in Casino Royale, I remember when Judy Dench said, 
since 9-11. I remember sitting up straight in the cinema and thinking, oh, wow, James Bond is post 9-11 now. You know, it was suddenly very, very vividly in our world. So the films are a great example of how you do it. And you take the essence of that character, but you keep modernizing him. And the way that I've approached it in thinking about his character is that, you know, so in his, particularly his relationship with women or his lack of relationships with women, <laughs> um, I looked at the, the kind of losses in his life. You know, I thought he loses his parents at a young age. He then falls in love with Vesper in Casino Royale and loses her. He, he later gets married and loses his wife the same day they get married. So this is a character who's gone through extreme trauma and when it comes to any woman he's attached to. So for me, that, that, that kind of makes sense of why his relationships would be so fleeting. Because it's not that he's unloving. He, I think he's a very loving character, but he doesn't stick around. And, and that's what I've been trying to get into uh, to make the character feel viable and convincing today. Well, I hope you stick around with the double O story for a long time, and I'm rooting for James Bond to pop up by the third novel, but we'll see, I guess, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Kim Sherwood and Emily Fisher at HarperCollins for setting up the interview. Double or Nothing goes on sale on April 11th. To order the book or to learn more about the real-world science and technology that's woven into the novel, just follow the links from my blog item at CosmicLog.com. Thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.